make sure this works. Okay. We uh, have Shavuot next week, and the truth is, the study of Pirkei Avot, which technically, in the kind of the, the custom of it, is, uh, is, to do sh- is to study Pirkei Avot in the weeks between Pesach and Shavuot, which is six Shabbatot. And then there are many, many communities who actually continue studying Pirkei Avot all throughout the summer until Rosh Hashanah. So uh, we'll continue. But this Shabbat is the sixth, uh, the sixth chapter of Pirkei Avot. What's unique about the sixth chapter is that... Here it's extras. Thanks. You're welcome. Pass down. Uh, what's unique about the sixth chapter is actually only five prakim. There are only five chapters of Mishnayot in Perkevot. The reason why they added a six is so that you can have at least one more week because there are six those six Shabbatot between Pesach and Shavuot. That way, you have uh, something to study from the same book on the Shabbat directly preceding. Shavuot. And that, that chapter is actually Breitot. Breitot are written by the same authors of the Mishnah, but not actually part of the Mishnah. They included it. It's called Perak Kinyan Torah. The entire Perak. It's, ten, it's ten, uh, 10 sort of passages or 10 ma'amarim that all have to do with study of Torah. Each one a different angle, each one sharing a different concept of, uh, of, of the study of Torah, and that's apropos as we head into the Chag of Matan Torah. What we'll try to do is tie together a few different elements of preparing for Shavuot, but also to, uh, to look at two personalities, two, two of the uh, great sages of the, uh, the Mishnayot and Pirkei Avot. And we'll start with the Mishnah which is really right at the end of Masechet Avot. It's a, I believe it's the second last Mishnah. And it's a Mishnah of Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. And Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, as far as we know, did not live in Israel. We have indications that he lived in Rome. We're going to see uh, there was already a Roman Jewish community in Rome, even close to the end of the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash. But even... even even before there was a destruction, there were already Jews living in Rome. When I was in Rome, I've only been there once, but the, the first time I went, the last time I went, we saw, we sat down, we paid a lot of money to go into this not such great tour in the Vatican. Um, everybody's like nodding their head, I did that one too. Um, but one thing that we got to see, because it was a Jewish tour, was uh, artifacts from the Jewish community of Rome which uh, they had things there that dated to the time before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And there were, they had things like menorahs, and, you know, and that was probably 100 years after Hanukkah. So if you're just dating things, they had sort of ritual, you know, ritualistic art or artifacts, archaeology that they found. And one of the things that we saw, well, one of the things that you saw there, you just had this feeling of, wow, there were already Jews living here, sort of, you know, we know the Romans destroyed the second Beit HaMikdash, so when those probably thousands and thousands of Jews ended up, many of them ended up in Rome, there was already a base community there. So Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma was one of the leaders, likely one of the leaders who was living in Rome at that time. And as we're going to see, that detail is actually important for appreciating the context of the story. Uh, so uh, let's, let's study the Mishnah together. The, uh, the English is on the bottom, I'll read in Hebrew, we can translate as we go along. This is a, a bit of a narrative 
the the Mishnah, and we'll uh, we'll try to we'll try to understand a little bit of what's going on here, and a little bit about as we uh, opened up last week the whole idea of who Haya Omer. Try to understand the, the sayings and the teachings based on who these people were as well. So, Amar Yossi ben Kisma, source number one. Pa machat hayiti mahalech baderech ufagabi adam echad. So he was walking on the way, and somebody confronted him. Somebody stopped him, greeted him. Benatan li shalom. He greeted me. Chazarti lo shalom. I said hello back to him. Amar li, Rabbi meizem akomata. It's an interesting way to begin a conversation with somebody. Where are you from? Usually, we begin with something a little bit, a little bit more about the person themselves. Here, he asked him, "Where are you from?" He says, "I come from a city of great scholars and sofrim." Now, we usually think of the word sofrim as a reference to people that write Sifrei Torah, Mezuzot, Tefillin. That's not what the reference of Sofrim is in the Mishnah. Sofrim is a reference to also the type of scholars, type of uh, community leaders, and they were called Sofrim because they would count, literally, from the word Lispor, they would count the letters of the Torah. These were people that they had, let's say, photographic memory, and they, they knew where every letter was. It was more the scholar than, uh, than anything to do with scribing. Okay, so he comes from a city of very brilliant scholars, brilliant Tamidei Chachamim. So the man has an offer for him, this person that meets him on the street. And he says to him, Amar li Rabbi, Ritzoncha shetadur imanu bimkomenu. Is it your will, is it your desire to come and live in our town? He's hired, basically offering to hire him. Okay, Hire this Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, come and live in our city. And he says to him, and he responds, and he says to him, and I'll offer you, I'm going to give you a salary that no rabbi's ever been paid and no rabbi will ever be paid. It's a, an unbelievable offer. All of the, the gold and, and silver and jewels and, and gems in the world. Says Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, Amartilo. And he's relating this story. So what we're studying here is a, is a narrative that He's sort of reflecting on something that happened in his life, and he's explaining what happened, and we're going to understand uh, a beautiful idea from, from his experience. He says, I said, responded to him, Even if you were to give me all of the gold, all the silver and all the gold, I will only live in a place of Torah. Not only that, Ella, and this is his still talking to this uh, individual who, who stopped him on the street. When a person leaves this world, you don't take with you your Lamborghinis, you don't take your fancy vacations, you don't take your gold, your silver, your jewelry, you don't take any of it with you. The only thing you take with you when you leave this world is Torah Masim Tovim Bilvad. That is the ultimate peace of luggage that we get to take with us on the journey after our life in this world. Shenemar, and he brings a pasuk from Mishlei, Each of these three pieces of the phrase represent a different part of, of our life, or sort of the journey of life. is a reference to Olam Hazeh, where Torah guides us while we are alive in this world. Bakever, says the Mishnah, after death, the Torah comes and, and, 
sort of pr- proves what we did, proves our Torah, our Torah lives can prove us and spare us from suffering. And then, of course, which is a reference to, which is a reference to waking up. It's a reference to Olam Haba, where there is a judgment, and the Torah can be there too. So to say, well, you lived a good life, you lived a, a, a you know observant life, you followed the you followed it, everything that it says in the Torah. So these are the teaching, and then he finishes with another pasuk from Tehillim, from David Melech, a similar type of idea. Tovli Torah Picha Malfeza Hava Kesef. It's one of these songs that the kids sing. So therefore, says Rabbi Yosef and Kisma, I'm not going to take the job. I'm turning down the offer to come and be the rabbi of your community. If, if I meant to have the money, if I meant to, to receive funds from Hashem to be able to live my life, then Hashem will give it to me. But I'm not going to go to your town. Why is he assuming that his town is not a Torah place? It's a really good question. So... We're actually going to see that all likelihood, it probably was a place of Torah. And not only that, that it probably was a place of Torah, and thank you for asking it, probably wouldn't have even lowered his ability to continue his pursuit of Torah, his pursuit of Torah scholarship, of writing Sfarim, of having Chavruta, whatever he was, whatever he was looking for in terms of spirituality in one place, perhaps he wouldn't have actually lost out on that even in the other place, which makes the question even stronger. But what really should bother us, and that's, this, this question is super important, but the piece that's even more sort of glaring is, isn't that what all of Judaism is about? About trying to uplift people, or trying to be able to go somewhere, you have a Jewish education, you have a background, you have knowledge, you can share with somebody else, you can give somebody else the opportunity to experience Shabbat, to experience Torah, and you're just going to say, you know what, I don't think it's good, and, and, and they're willing to pay you, but even if not so, the opportunity to go and uplift and, and be able to go there, it's hard to understand. And, you know, going back to what we said at the beginning, this was Rome. It sounds like if he was really living in Rome, I only live in a place of Torah. I can only imagine that Rome was the most uh, spiritually enriching place to live at the time. It was the seat of the, you know, the greatest empire in the world. So, so we, have to, we have to try to understand what's going on, what's going on in here. So let's go back to the beginning of the story, just make a few points I think are interesting. If anybody has a suggestion they want to share, feel free to, uh, feel free to chime in. Uh, the beginning of the story says, Pam achat hayiti mahalech It's interesting, sort of, uh, just this idea. Usually we find the Rabbanim inside the Beit HaMidrash, having conversations, having debates, having arguments. This idea of Pam achat hayiti mahalech, I was, I was out walking. We do have another, uh, another Mishnah in Pirkei Avot that says, I think it's in the fourth parak, that says, uh, you're studying Torah and you stop and you say, wow, what a beautiful tree. Remember this Mishnah? So the Mishnah says, this person is mitchayev b'nafsho. The, the statement is very shocking. That's a bad thing. To stop and say, what a beautiful, what a beautiful mountain, what a beautiful tree, what a beautiful garden. So how does that work? So, so one of the classic understandings of it is, if you see nature and experiencing Hashem's world and Hashem's creations as separate, as a separate entity from your Judaism, from your spirituality, from your life as a Jew, and it's, you know, it's, it's, there's no integration between your life in the Beit HaMidrash, your life in the Shul, your life in Tefillah, and everything that exists outside that's so beautiful in the world, and you're not connecting the two, that's Mitchei Avinav Shoh. 
Because you're stopping and saying, well, there's my life inside of the shul, there's my life when I'm you know, in the middle of my tefillah, but then I go outside and it's sort of a different life. And you're not bridging the two together. But we don't have very often statements that you know, get into this idea of So the commentaries explain that what's going on here is that Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma had left the Beit HaMidrash. By leaving the Beit HaMidrash, he was putting himself into a place where he could be challenged or tested. And this was his test. He was sent this question. What are you going to do with this offer, with this opportunity? Now, maybe you look at this and say, based on the question we asked at the beginning, Maybe he was. Maybe he was wrong. Maybe he. Maybe he said the wrong things. So how do we understand it? So that that that's number one. There's actually a, a, another commentary that says that the person that greeted him was Eliyahu Navi. It says Adam Echad. It doesn't tell us who this person is. It just says someone stopped him on the street and greeted him. Uh, and I think if you think of that as Eliyahu Navi, he didn't know it was Eliyahu Navi. But Eliyahu Navi, we don't usually, you know, aren't able to know if Eliyahu Navi is greeting us. Maybe he's maybe he's greeting us all the time. Or she, um, I don't know. Probably not a she, but but uh, but dressed up and, and having a conversation and having an interaction, and all of a sudden, he's being tested. Right? He's being uh, he's being given this uh, he's being given this opportunity to sort of show what you know what his worldview is, and what his perspective is. So let's let's try to break down a little bit of this question, and then I want to. Sort of take it, uh, take it to uh, to the next part, which will connect us to another element of Rabbi Yosef and Kisman's life, connected to another very important personality, Rabbi Chanina ben Tradion, as we'll see in a few moments. Anybody have any suggestions? What 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 was the issue for him to go? You know, and he's one of the greatest rabbanim. He's one of the greatest scholars of the time. What was the issue for him to go to take his Torah knowledge and to share it with other people to be mashpia? He had a great opportunity to go. And, and uplift other people, to educate other people. Is it the same thing as last week, that it had to be for the right reasons? Uh, interesting, interesting. Are we tying it so, in? So, so say more. <laughs> it's a, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Everything's connected. Everything's interconnected. But say more. What are you, what are you trying, really trying to say? No, because it was the same thing last week where for the right father, reasons. his father... So what are, you, what are you concerned about? The money. Okay, so the money issue. Right, because okay. he wants to do it. What's, what's the problem with the money? Perhaps, what's, what could be the problem with the money? Um, what could be a potential problem? Well, potentially money. Could... You pay membership in a shul. Membership pays for the rabbi's salary. Likely, and for children's programs, hopefully. <laughs> uh, so the rabbi sort of is under pressure because he knows that everybody who's sitting in the room is paying a salary. So if he's coming to the community and everybody's paying in for him to stand up there, so the question sort of is, well, does he have to bow to what the community wants or can he say what he wants, do what he wants? He wants to, you know, uh, to be an influence and to teach and to be mashpia. So maybe the money is... Is he serving the money? Or is is right. The money could be problematic, right? Well, so yeah so let's say let's say let's take this one step further so let's say he's not going to lose any of his ruchniyot. the torah is going to be great there'll be chavrutot there'll be there'll be all the things that he would want in that community not only that we're going to see in a minute money's not even an issue someone comes over to him and says i'm going to fund your salary privately no one's going to pay membership in the shul you just come you don't have to worry about it Okay, so now what? 
Now, how do we understand the story? Let's just, let's just take the scenario that you know, would take away all of those issues, even though the point is well made, and we'll see. And maybe money still is an issue in that case. We have to, we have to sort of explore that. So there's two, two kind of avenues to, to look at with this. Number one, it's the possibility that perhaps what he is saying in rejecting the offer is it's dangerous for me to go there. Dangerous from my personal, not from an egotistical perspective. I'm happy to be mashpia, but I'll do it via Zoom. I'll do it from my, uh, you know, from where I am. This is the Kimitzion Teitzei Torah. This is the holiest place. I'll teach Torah from here. I'll write my svarim, we'll send them out, we'll, we'll, write, uh, we'll write emails every week, we'll have a WhatsApp group. Anybody who wants can get access to the Torah, but I'm not going to go over there to be in that, to be in that spot because it's, it's dangerous spiritually for my, for my growth and my development. But there's another sort of way to look at this, which is a bit more, uh, I think, of a sharper read. Look back in the text, in the second line, at the end of the second line, in source number one, what does, the, what does the individual say to Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma? He says, Ritzoncha shetadur imano bimkomenu. It's an amazing insight. This is the Maharal. Maharal writes it. You can see it in source number two. The Maharal in his commentary on Perkevot, it's called Derech Chaim. Maharal was Rabbi Judah Lowy, lived in Prague. I think, I think he was the chief rabbi there, 17th century. If you go there, you can see a, a statue and it's a whole shul there you can visit. The Maharal me Prague. And he writes like this, says the Maharal, an amazing insight, So what was the person really asking? It's important for everyone in the world to know that we have a rabbi in our community. We, we're from people, we're Shomer Shabbat, Kashrut, we follow the laws, but we're very happy with our Judaism. We just need to have a rabbi in our community so that everybody knows we're an Orthodox community. We've heard the story before. What are we saying here? We want you to live in our community. We're not interested in changing. We're not interested in growing. We just want you to be here. The words are, live in our town. So that we can say, whenever we travel the world, oh, who's the rabbi in your community? Oh, that big rabbi. Yeah, yeah, we're chashev, we're serious people. We don't, uh, you know, the rabbi just, he's there. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do that much. He doesn't, we don't, you know, we're not, we're not there to, but we have him. There's a plaque on the wall, you know, this community, Mara da Asra, of this town, of this city. So Rabbi Yosef and Kisma heard that, and he said, I see what's going on over here. They don't really want me to come there and, and inspire them to change. They just want me to come there and be a figurehead, be a, you know, be a title on a wall. It's very sharp. It's very sharp. Look how the Maharal finishes in source number two, in the third, third line. If, if it was legitimate that you're, you're asking me to come there and teach Torah, great, then I'm in. But you're asking me to just come there and live then you're tying my hands and you're telling me, be here, but you can't really push that and you can't tell people to do this and you can't tell people to change that way. So, and even if not that, and you can't even say things that are explicit but implicit at the same time, that's the Maharal. 
I was once asked to join, I'm going to be very careful how I say this, uh, long before I lived in Israel, I was once asked to join a, a student trip somewhere, uh, somewhere in the world, and, uh, and it was with a certain organization, and um, I did a lot of research into, to be the rabbi of the, of the trip. I did a lot of research into it. I ended up saying no. One of the only times I've really kind of said no to something like that. Uh, it was a big opportunity, a great opportunity to, to be part of something and really hopefully could have had an influence, who knows. Um, but uh, I had spoken to people who had, you know, had been part of it. And they told me that you know, this, this, particular, uh, you know, this particular setup does not necessarily lend itself to people being open. And that, you know, you come on as we have a rabbi on the trip because we need to, you know, tell the world that that's, uh, and it's very sad. And it's very sad to have, you know, that, that those realities kind of exist and there are communities like that where it's more about the, you know, saying that you have that rather than actually people, people looking to grow. At the end of the day, there's probably some people in that town who wanted to grow, but there's a general concept here of, I see where this is going, and this is this doesn't this doesn't uh, this doesn't resonate with me in a way that uh, that I want to be interested in it. So therefore, Rabbi Yosef and Kisva says I'm not going to go there. They don't want to change. It's dangerous for that Rav to go now. So so what, so then what was he thinking? Did he really think the guy was asking Rabbi Yosef and Kisva, Did he really think that he was going to sort of you know consider this? Did he really? Did he really believe that Rabbi Yosef? So, so this is where we, you know, this is where we go back to what we said at the beginning. That in all likelihood, in this story, Rabbi Yosef wouldn't have had to give anything up to go there. Really, wasn't about, wasn't about him personally going there and all of a sudden, you know, not having access to all the things that he would have, would have wanted to have access to. But what it is about, what it is about, is about it's about the environment. It's about the environment. I think there's a very very sharp point here about the environment that we find ourselves in, that we put ourselves in, that we justify putting ourselves in for one reason or another, and we'll we'll go into that just for a couple of minutes. That was what was on Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma's mind. Source number three, the Torah tells us that when Moshe went to Midian, he ran away from Mitzrayim, he ran away from Paro, he was... Uh, he was in trouble. He was on the run. We know the whole story. He gets to Midian. He helps uh, these, these young girls at the well fight off these, uh, these bad guys. They go home. They tell their father. His name is Yitro. They say, this Egyptian man helped us. And he says, well, bring him home. We've got we to gotta thank him. We've got to show him appreciation. And Moshe comes there, and he, he actually likes it. He's very pleased with the, the whole story over there. He's not interested in going back to Egypt right now. He's afraid. And the Pasuk says in Perak Bet, Vayoel Moshe Lashevet Etaish. Vayoel Moshe Lashevet Etaish. Moshe, the simple reading is, Moshe basically commits to staying there in Midian. Now, what was the commitment? It was more than just a, I like it here. It was a promise or an oath or a shvu'ah of sorts. Says the Midrash in source number four, Yakut Shimoni. Unbelievable comment. Moshe wanted to marry Tzipora. He asked Yitro for permission to marry his daughter. Amarlo, 
I'll let you marry Tzipor on one condition. Listen to this story. It's not in the text, okay? But it all comes from the word Vayoel. So, Amar lo Moshe, end of the second line. Mahu, what, what are you asking of me? What would you like me to, to do? What's the condition in order to marry Tzipor? Amar lo, Haben Unbelievable line. He says, Moshe, a descendant of yours, okay, a future descendant of yours, you're going to commit that that child will, will, will be a, uh, a priest, basically. Okay? Someone who's going to serve Avodah Zarah. Someone who's going to serve idolatry. You commit to that, you can marry my daughter. What did Moshe do? I'm in, says Moshe. I'm in. Kibelalav. Yitro says, I want to make sure you're really in. Amar lo hi shavali. He says, promise me. Take a swear. Take an oath. Promise me you're going to do it. Vayi shavalo. And Moshe, and Moshe does that. Shenamar vayoel Moshe. The word vayoel comes from the word Allah, which Allah in biblical language means to take to swear, to take an oath, Lashon Ain Allah El Lashon Shaul brings another pasuk from the Navi that tells us the same idea. This is unbelievable midrash. This midrash is saying now. When did it happen? By the way, it wasn't Moshe's children. It was a descendant of Moshe in the book of Shoftim, Pesel Micha. For those who remember the story, I think it's Perak Yudzayin, something like that. Uh, when it says over there. They had this uh, sort of Jewish guy who ends up uh, becoming the server of this <laughs> Pesel, of this statue that was uh, called, known as Pesel Micha. And he was a descendant of Moshe, a direct descendant of Moshe Rabbeinu. And this was the fulfillment of that promise that Moshe made. Now you have to wonder, this is Moshe Rabbeinu. What is he doing, making a deal, cutting a deal with Yitro, just to marry his daughter, now one of his descendants is going to be a priest for Vodah Zarah. What, what, is, what is that? Where does that come from? And how does that even come about? So it has to be, and this is the way that most of the commentaries understand it. Yitro, we know, eventually converted to Judaism, but it probably was maybe near the end of his process. But Yitro had not yet, according to this version of the story, he obviously had not yet committed himself to, you know, ridding himself of the world of, of idolatry and idolatrous thought and, and, and ideology and so on. And therefore, Yitro was very interested in, you know, that continuing in his family. He wanted to see that. He wanted his daughter to be, you know, to be still affiliated with that, those religious thoughts that were within his own mind. So, so what happened? What happened was the environment impacted Moshe. Being in that environment had some level of impact. The Sefer HaChinuch writes about the idea of environment. When you walk into a freshly painted house and you're trying as hard as you can not to get any paint on your clothes, it's impossible. It's impossible not to get any paint on your shoes, a little drop goes in your shirt, because we get impacted by the environments that we're in. Whether we are super conscious of everything that's going on around us, everything that we're, you know, we're, our radars are up, I'm going to be careful, I'm going to make sure, oh, I'm going to that person's home, I'm not sure about their kashrut, so I'm going to be careful, but then there might be something else, and we just, we just, there's certain things that 
just by being there, we get influenced. And the idea of being influenced can be very, can be very dangerous spiritually for us, for our children, for our families. Well, now, sorry, wasn't this a step up for him anyway? He's come from Egypt. He doesn't really know any different. So he's come to this nice family who have values. Right. I mean, and therefore, so, it was okay. So you're justifying it. Well, not just, uh, yeah. As if he wasn't he doing to, anything that he felt was bad. But the proof is that he has to, that he tries to, like, use make it as him, a condition. Right. That's, but yeah, but that's why he wouldn't think anything of it. If it wasn't something he was against. Does he serve God? I mean, I can, make, I can make the question even stronger, by the way. I think it's a good question. Moshe probably didn't even really fully appreciate what his identity was right. at that point. I mean, the, they called him an Egyptian. You know, he, he, what he, they, didn't even, they didn't even refer to him as, as a Hebrew. I mean, they knew there were slaves in Egypt. Uh, they've been there for, for a while at that point. So, yeah, could be. I think it's a good question. Was it pre or post burning bush? Pre. Pre, pre. pre. yeah. Right. Yeah, would have been really not really it's not relevant about the Torah it's just about a concept like someone believes in something and you're trying to right. persuade them to do something else but at what point is it maybe like a, a challenge to then go and take that on okay so that's that is that is the million dollar question and I think every person here we all struggle with that question each in our own place and we discuss this you know internally with our families and even within community uh, no judgment, but if you look at the scenario you brought about yourself, would it not be better for there to be a rabbi on the group mm-hmm. that actually wants to influence than someone who's... hundred percent. I'm sure you made the right decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a, there were other factors in the decision. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Marrying someone... Somebody else went and did it. Yeah, no. Yeah, somebody else went and did it. I... I it was only because somebody basically said, don't do it. You know, somebody, somebody I trusted, uh, you know, somebody I trusted. But yeah, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. I'll, I'll, I'll take it one step further because I've had many experiences sort of educationally with people who really don't come from, a, you know, any Jewish education background. And say my, my day-to-day uh, interaction is pretty much with mostly secular students. I'm few some of them become religious but most of them are uh, most of them don't live uh, a religious life by any by any means and uh, I think when I a long time ago when I started doing this I had totally the wrong understanding of what what my approach was supposed to be and how I was supposed to be interacting with people and I made a lot of mistakes I made a lot of mistakes which I learned from them but there was a lot of uncomfortable things that happened you Sorry, know. there wasn't fair. No. But I'm saying, look at Moshe's scenario. Yeah, I actually think, I actually think, I actually think the question is a is a really difficult question. Because mm. Yitro ended up even a hundred percent. I think just down to our level here, you know, as parents, as community people, you get you get invited over for Shabbat to someone. Your kids are invited over to a party or to, you know, to something, or we're invited to this simcha or that. And, and so there are scenarios that will come up and, and every person, where, wherever you are in your level of growth, wherever you are in your Jewish journey, 
there's going to be things that you'll say, okay, but I'm drawing the line. You know, I'm drawing the line. It can be, a, it can be something as, you know, as simple, never simple, as you know, being invited over to someone who's a work colleague, but they, they keep a level of kashrut which is, which is lower than the one in my home. And how do I navigate that? To you know, a family member who's marrying uh, somebody who's not Jewish. And what do, how do I, you know... What do I do with my, how do I, how to explain it to my kids? And these things are very, very complicated. They're very complicated. So, you know, we could, we could stop and say, okay, um, we could stop and say, you know, like Alicia Benabuya, we have to be, you know, sensitive and careful and, and, uh, and not just, um, you know, and not just run to, to make assumptions. And yeah, we could do that. You know, be sensitive and and say, well, every scenario is, you know, but but we have to deal with it. We have to. Feel, and I, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer, but I do think engaging in like a real conversation and then sort of saying, I'm going to own the decision that I make. You know, I'm going to go to that, whatever that is, that event, that Shabbat meal, that uh, that gathering and no and no going in that there can be side effects you know, uh, of, of, of being in that side effects on yourself. And yeah, yeah and then we've had, and, and I'm sure if we're all, you know, running through the history in our mind, we've been to things where we walked away and said, maybe I shouldn't have gone, been part of that and gone to that. And uh, maybe it wasn't the right decision. And we learned, we learned from those things. And we're not, uh, I don't think anybody's got the, you know, the perfect, uh, and again, maybe you could say the same thing about Moshe. Like we're saying, I think, I think it's a, yeah. it's a very good question. I appreciate it. It's it's okay. No no harm done. Uh, the uh, the uh, so so when it comes to Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, right? He's looking at this and saying the problem is not solvable by money. That's sort of coming back to this point because someone can walk over and say I'm going to fund this privately, and you're taken care of. So you're not at the you're not at the you know at the will of the baalabatim of the shul. Okay, you're not at the will of the members of the shul. The members of the shul are, are showing up. You can you can do your thing. But he recognized somehow, some way, on his level, that the problem is human nature. What's the human nature piece? Everybody wants to be accepted. We all want to be accepted. If we want to be accepted, even if we try to resist the urge to want to be accepted, it's a very powerful urge that we all have to want to be accepted. So we're going to go into that place because consciously or subconsciously we're saying to ourselves, well, I wanna, I wanna fit in. I wanna be part of it, and then we might regret the decision later. But it's very hard to, it's very hard to actually be in control of that. And I think, I think Rabbi Yosef and Kismet sort of, you know, making, making a, making a commentary about that. So it's not about the finances. It's really about the human nature piece. Why does he make such a long speech at the end about the money? And because it's a virtual certainty that there's going to be a loss of Torah. It's true. There'll be Torah in that place, but. Don't fool yourself. If you want to go in to whatever the scenario is and fool yourself into thinking it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay for my kids, it's going to be okay for me, but you know and you're fully conscious of exactly what you're getting yourself into, then you're fooling yourself. We've all probably fooled ourselves in that. And, uh, and that's something that I think uh, is a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's hard to hear it and it's hard to swallow it, but it's important to, it's important to say it because... Uh, we we all we all need that uh, we all need need that chizuk sometimes. 
Um, but that's the negativity of, of, a, of, a, of a surrounding, right? The Mishnah in Pirkavot says, Ezehu chacham, halomed mikol adam, but there's another one, it's actually not in Pirkavot, it's in Masech HaBrachot. Haro'et hanolad, haro'et hanolad. What does it mean to be haro'et hanolad? To see, try to see the future, try to see the outcome of a particular decision, which in this context is really very much about, you know, very much about this piece. But I want to now bridge this story, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, with the life of uh, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. So I brought, source number five is just a summary of what I, I just mentioned about Sviva. It's a very beautiful essay from Rav Dessler, uh, who lived in England. Um, uh, and he, he, he wrote, a, wrote a very beautiful essay in one of his books, on Mikhtav Meliahu, Strive for Truth. That's the English, right? So he has a, he has a whole essay about surroundings, right? The surroundings that we go in. Well, uh, you, can, you can read that one for homework. But let's look at the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah. And this Gemara tells us a story about Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion and Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. So again, context is, end of the second Beit HaMikdash, probably a little bit after, the Romans basically outlawed Torah study, public Torah study, teaching of Torah. It was not something that the Romans were very fond of. They didn't want the rabbis to have influence. They didn't want the rabbis to have power. So they basically banned it. And it was, it was not allowed for people to get involved in this. And one of the great teachers of that time was Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. He was another one of those who publicly taught Torah and publicly defied this ruling of the Romans. Rabbi Akiva, as we know, was another, another of these individuals. Rabbi Akiva was in Israel. And again, to do that in Rome, if, he really, if, the, if we're correct in saying that they lived in Rome, you can sort of think what, that, what the magnitude of that was and the, the danger of doing that as well. And obviously... Rabbi Hanin ben Chodjo met his death in the story as a result of uh, sort of defying the Roman, the Roman uh, rules of the time. So Tanur Rabbanan, the English translation is actually on the second page. So if you want to follow, we're going to just uh, do this part. I'll, I'll go uh, inside um, and we'll translate as we go along. Keshachala Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. So this is a story about the same rabbi of the Mishnah that we just studied before. When he got sick and ill, it was at the end of his life. Halach Rabbi Hanin ben Chodjoon levakro. Rabbi Hanin Ben was one of his colleagues, and he went to visit him. Bikor Cholim, Amar lo Hanina Achi, Yata Yodea Shauma Zumin Hashemayim Himlichua. It's a very interesting line. He says, "Don't you know that the Romans were were sort of put here, put in place, given this power, given the ability to be in the rule right now from Hashem? Hashem is the one who gave them." The ability, they're the ones who destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, Sarfat, Techalo, Hagah, Chasidav. That's probably a reference to other rabbinic scholars who had already been executed at the time. The Avda, Tuvav, and sort of wiped out the, the great Jews at the time. Vadaini Kayemet. They're still, they're, still, they're still alive. They're still here. They're still powerful, the Romans. And if so, you've got to take that seriously. You can't just do what you want. Look what's going on around us. This is Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. So now think to yourself, hold on a second. This is Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma who wouldn't even give up, who wouldn't give up, you know, his, his Sfarim collection to go to another town to teach Torah. And here he is criticizing Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. What are you doing? You're putting your life in danger. It's very hard to understand. Sort of a about face. He says, Shamati, I heard about you. You're defying the Roman, the Roman decrees of the time. You're gathering shiurim. You're bringing students together. You're studying. You're, you're, you're publicizing Torah. 
And Sefer Munach Lecha Bechekech. And you're walking around with a Sefer Torah, literally walking around with a Sefer Torah. Are you blind? You don't see what's going on? It's pretty, pretty strong words. This is Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. He, the guy came to do Bikur Cholim, poor guy, okay? And here he is telling him, uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't, uh, you know, all the, all the muster that we get when we go to do a good deed and then someone in our family tells us all the, all the things we need to fix in our lives. So he, so he says, Says Hashem is in charge. Hashem is in charge. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. This is what I think is Ratzon Hashem. Hashem wants me to be teaching Torah. I'm going to continue doing it. Says Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. Must have been some kind of seer of the future. I'm telling you things that are here in the reality. You're floating up in the sky. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, Hashem will take care of me. It's all good. Do what I want, I'll go where I want, I'll walk where I want. I don't need to. What about, like, you know, sakanat take care of yourself, don't put yourself in danger. No, mina shamaim yirachamu. So he says, Tama ani, look at the words, scary words, im lo yisrafu otcha vet sefer ha Torah ba'esh. Says Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, he says, I would be surprised kind of if this didn't happen to you. And we know that's exactly what happened. So Rabbi Chinam Chandra will read about it in a moment. Then they have a very, very strange interaction. This is the final conversation they have. He says, Well, you can tell the future. I want to understand. You know, you know, you know what's going to happen to me in my death. I want to know what's going to happen to me after my death. What does he say? Says Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, did you ever do anything good in your life? Strange question, right? Do you have anything to show for yourself? Sort of like you're going to come up to Shemayim after 120 years, God's going to say, hey, what do you got for me? You know, what do you got? you have any chesed? you have any Torah learning? This is Rabbi Chenina ben Tradion. He was teaching Torah in public. What kind of a question is that? Do you have anything that you have to show for yourself? Amar lo, ma'ot shel purim nitrafuli b'ma'ot shel tzedakah. He says, one time I had matanot l'avyonim money and it got switched, right? It got switched with tzedakah money. Okay. Seriously? That was your good deed of your life? Both of them are basically tzedakah money. One was just going to go for Purim and one was going to go for general. Tz- Seriously, this is your, this is what, this is all you got? No, you didn't finish. I finished Shas this many times. I, all the amazing Torah that he taught, all the Sfarim that he wrote, doesn't mention any of that. And I gave it out to poor people. Amar lo, imken, says Rabbi Yosem, wow, what a tzaddik, what an amazing person you are. I want to have a piece of your your goodness. May my, my portion be of your portion, and may my lot be of your lot. Unbelievable line. So what is this about? Why does he say that? Why, why, does, why, why, why is Rabbi Yossi saying this? How could he ask about Rabbi Chanin if he ever did anything good? What kind of a question is that? Also, Rabbi Yossi gave up millions, millions, Billions for, for, for Torah. Well, Rabbi Hanina gave up pennies for tzedakah. He gave up pennies and 
He's like wondering about him. I want to have a piece of that. What does that mean? And now he says, oh, I like your, you know, I like your version of, of Judaism. It's good stuff. I want to have a piece of that. So again, this is from Rav Dessler. He explains that the true test of a person is not in great deeds. It's not in the great things that we do. It's in the small tests. It's in the small things that we do. And the message here, and we'll see in a minute how it follows through through the rest of the story, you know, it's, the, it's not the how was your Yom Kippur, it was how was your Marav after Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. How did you, how did you, you know, how did you, how did you begin the new year? And uh, I think it was one of my rabbim in, in Yeshiva University, and whenever they would ask, how was your Yom Kippur, he would say, ask me next year. You know, so see how much I grew during the year. It's not about how my Yom Kippur was. It's how did I implement everything that I, that I gained and grew through those experiences. And, uh, and, the, and the idea is, and I think it's, it's, you know, we look at this and say, well, maybe I can't accomplish all of these incredible things, but I can do, I can do my best. I can do, I can do the small tests. And the truth is, this comment is basically saying that that's actually what, that's actually what really matters. What really matters is the small pieces. So what? You gave up millions and millions you know, to be able to continue your life of Torah. But what was important was that small deed that you did. That's actually what mattered in the end. I'll share with you this. The names in the Torah for Yocheved and Miriam are, well, at least what Rashi tells us, Shifra and Pua. Okay. We're never, we don't ever really know that it's actually them. It doesn't... Some indication. Shifra and Pua. The question is, why are they called Shifra and Pua? Why aren't they called Yocheven and Miriam, if that's who they actually were? So what does Rashi say? What did Shifra do? She helped the mothers have smooth labor, Mishaperet Ayeled, and Pua because she would make poo-poo noises to calm the child down. So, really? We're going to celebrate this? This is what every parent will do for their child. What every parent will do to have a to have a healthy, smooth labor, a, a, a calm a child down from crying, that's that's greatness. The answer is yes. The small, the small pieces, the small deeds, the small, small activities, are those that have the greatest impact. So what happens at the end of Rabbi Chanina ben Trajan's life? It's very tragic. So the end of this is actually quite depressing. But we'll try to. We'll try to keep it, uh, keep it up, uplifting at the same time. I'm reading just the last two lines here. Rabbi Yossi ben Kisman. Rabbi Yossi ben Kisman died, he passed away. This rabbi that we've been studying, his teaching. Tonight, it's very interesting. All the Roman officials came to his funeral. That's what it says. And they, uh, they eulogized him. He must have had connections in the government, political connections, who knows what. And what happened? The Roman officials were on their way back from the funeral and they saw Rabbi Chanina ben Tradion. And what was he doing? Teaching Torah, giving shir. And they said, that's it. You, you disobeyed our decree of not teaching Torah in public. They took him and they, they tied him up with his Sefer Torah. And so we read about this story on Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. And he was basically burned. He was burned alive. They put him. They put the whole thing on fire. And they took these kind of uh, uh, wool 
and they uh, soaked it in water and they put it on his body so that it would be a slow burning process. Three conversations that he has with people. I mean, the whole story is um, hard to understand and hard to wrap your head around. Three people engage him in conversation at the end of his life while he's burning. This is the this is the way the story is told. The first one is his daughter. Who is his daughter? Very famous woman in the Talmud. The most famous woman probably in Talmudic writing. Buria. Buria was the daughter of Rabbi Chaim Tradion. She witnessed you know this whole thing unfolding, and she's talking to her father. Abba, Ereka bekach. Wow, so horrible that I have to see you this way. If I would be burnt alone without the Sefer Torah, then it would be difficult to endure. It's hard words to read even. Now that I'm with the Sefer Torah, it's okay. It's better. Not only is it better, because the Sefer Torah is... Hashem will make sure that the shaming of the Sefer Torah will, will, will have an accounting. Whoever shames the Torah, there will be an accounting for that person. That was his interaction with his daughter. That was number one. Amr lo tamidav, second one. Students, Rebbe ma'ataroe, what do you see? What do you see while he was, while he was in this situation? No, this uh, is part of the Gemara, maybe even familiar to people if you've never heard the story before. Amr lahen gilyon nisrafin v'otiyot parchot. I see the parchment burning, but the letters of the Torah are flying off the parchment, floating up into the sky. So they said to him, Why don't you allow yourself to die sooner, to die faster by opening your mouth? Opening your mouth will cause you to have a quicker death. I'll let my maker take me in the way that he wants to take me and not do it myself, not bring it upon myself. Okay? Again, hard to understand. Amar Lo, the final person to interact with him was the executioner. This Roman executioner who was carrying out the execution. And he says, you know what? Rebbe, I'm going to turn up the fire. I'm going to try to accelerate your death. He says to him, Will you bring me into Olam Will you promise me a place in Olam if I if I accelerate your death? It's a Roman executioner. He's probably killed hundreds of thousands of Jews. Probably other people as well. Amar Lo says, Rabbi Chanina Metrajan, Hen, you got it, it's a deal. He shavali, swear to me. Nishbalo, he swore to him. Miyad, here Baba Shalevav and Atal Sfugin, he took the wool off his body. Yatsan Nishma Tobi Meira, Rechinim Chajan died right away. Afhu Kafatsu Nafalatochaur. And then the executioner jumped in the fire. And he died as well. He took his own life. Yatsa Batkova Amra, a heavenly voice came out and said, Rabbi Chanina ben Tradion, Vekaltsen Tuniri, which is the word for the executioner. They're both invited into Olamaba. Imagine putting those two names together in a line. They both walk in together, hand in hand, you know. Bacha Rebbe Ve'amar. Rebbe, this is sort of, you know, sort of postscript. Okay, Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, who lived much later than the story. When he heard about the story, he cried. And he said, wow, some people can live a whole life. A whole life. 
and maybe get olam haba, and maybe you know ha- have what what these people, what this person experienced. And some people yesh kona olam Some people in one moment. The question is, how do we understand all this? So we only have a few minutes left. It's a very difficult story. It's a very heavy story, and very hard to very hard to kind of wrap our heads around the whole thing. But let's just make a few points. I think one point here is this idea of small deeds. Is this idea of, of one action, of the impact of doing one good thing every day of our life, or once a week, or once a month, be able to go to bed at night and say, today I fill in the blank. But you should be able to fill in the blank. And we, should, we should be able to go to sleep. And as that uh, commencement speech that I watched many years ago, it was uh, a, an admiral in the US Navy. He was speaking to a group of graduates, I think it was in Texas University or something. So you can look up the speech on YouTube. It's a very, very well-known speech. I time 12, 15 years ago. And he said, he said the top 10 things he learned from being a Marine in the, in the U.S. Navy. He said, number one, make your bed every day. It was the number one thing. And what, what was the idea behind it? And the idea behind it was you should be able to, every single day of your life, feel like you accomplished something. Now, take that one step further, accomplish something for yourself. Feel like you were productive every single day. And we have those days we're sort of like, I worked 16 hour a day and I feel like I didn't do anything. I just didn't accomplish anything. And those are really, really tough days, really tough days. But to be able to sort of identify something, even for ourselves, for our own mental health, for our own just, just you know, feeling, feeling, uh, feeling like, uh, you know, I, I, today was a, a little bit more better version of myself than yesterday. So I think, I, think, I think there's a point here about that. I think there's one point here about that. But I think there's something even, there's something even more here, which is a, Clearly, a deeper level, and there's many, many layers to the story. What, what, was, what was the Roman, what, what were they so against? What was the, what was the element that they, they, couldn't, they couldn't have the Jew as a, you know, as a, as a symbol, the Sefer Torah as a symbol? Because it's not just about the letters. A Sefer Torah is made of parchment, which is essentially animal hide, skin. It's a very, very physical thing. The letters, ink. All of a sudden, you take that skin, you put the ink on it, and all of a sudden, it's the holiest thing in the world. It's a wild concept if you think about it. It's a skin, an animal, stands outside eating, going to the bathroom all day. Like, all of a sudden, we're like, bless you, we're reading it, we're using it, putting it, you know, in the center of the room. Bless you. Put it in the center of the room, we put it in the middle of our, you know, put it in this locked up cabinet, it's the holiest item. How does that happen? Because, and I think this is very much tied, you know, Rabbi Yosef and Kismar clearly had different worldviews. That, that we see, and that's very clear in the story. But what I do think comes out here very strong is that what they couldn't understand and what they were trying to defeat, what they were trying to destroy, wasn't just the letters. It wasn't just the letters. It wasn't just the, and, you know, Rabbi Yosef is saying, what is that, what's that imagery? The, the, the parchment is burning, but the letters are floating up. You can never destroy the Jewish soul. You can never destroy the Jewish neshama. You can never destroy that fire that's inside. That, that, will, always, that will always burn. That will always be there. You can burn down. You can, you can, that, that can all happen. Because we represent, as a, as a people, the ability to bridge and connect the physical and the spiritual. That all of a sudden you can take something that's so mundane, that's so physical, that's so base, and elevate it and uplift it in such such a holy, beautiful way. And that's what they that's what they couldn't, that's what they were trying to destroy. It wasn't just the letters, it wasn't just what the letters represent. It was the fact that they 
that they come together and they represent something, something holy and beautiful. And I think that that point about the letters is also very true to this idea of the small deeds. Every letter, every letter, every letter, what, what's, what's one letter of Torah? It's something so small, something so insignificant in, in terms of what it looks like. But it's infinite, infinite, infinite power and light. So Rabbi Yosef and Kisma, Rabbi Chinim and each coming at it, I think, from a different angle, from a different perspective, are here to tell us and here to teach us through life and through, unfortunately, the tragedy of, of, uh, of the death of Rabbi Chinim ibn Trajan, a very tragic death, to teach us about don't, 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 you know, go big or go home. It's true. We believe in that concept. You know, you should, you should do things in a great way. You should strive, strive for greatness. But make sure that you also have something small that you could walk away with every single day and say, that was, that was the one that, that was the one that was really important. And I think that that, you know, that message sometimes gets lost in the, in the desire to, to do and to accomplish and to take over and to take on big projects and to do big things, to make big waves, to make big changes. It's not always about the big, big changes. Sometimes those small little steps and those small little deeds are going to be the things that actually make the largest difference, not just in our own lives, but please God, in the lives of, uh, of everybody around us. Erev Tov to everyone. Okay.